0: We are taking this time uh, leading up to Easter just uh, to focus on the cross and its implications uh, for us in everyday life. And as you uh, joining in this morning, I want to encourage you just to find Romans, uh, the New Testament uh, letter of Romans, chapter five. We're going to be looking there uh, this week, and also uh, next week as we unpack some of the, the facets of the cross. As you're finding that, uh, let me just uh, say a, a quick word. I, I know we, we've gotten uh, obviously lots of attention in the news and. Uh, many of you are dealing with this on uh, the uh, business front and other uh, uh, fronts. Uh, uh, just the whole kind of attention uh, given to the, the, the coronavirus, and uh, as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, we we should be the the, the least ones to panic. <laughs> Uh, but we should certainly uh, pray uh, and also take necessary precautions. One of the questions we have gotten uh, is, "What about mission trips? Uh, what about mission trips and uh, that sort of thing?" And and our answer to that, quite honestly, is we're, we're kind of we're waiting and seeing. We're we're waiting and seeing. Uh, obviously, it depends on location and that sort of thing. We'll look for guidance from uh, health officials, uh, but also uh, missionaries on the field uh, that we partner with. If if we go and just, uh, you know, what they're uh, telling us and uh, the feedback we're getting there. And so uh, as you pray, uh, just pray for wisdom. We want to be uh, wise in that. Uh, at the same time, we, we don't want uh, that one of our prayers is, Lord, don't let fear dictate our decisions, uh, whether that's as an individual uh, or as, as a church uh, uh, fellowship there. And so, so just, uh, you know, we, we'll try to uh, be abreast of that and realize every individual will always make uh, their own decisions. What they think is wise to do in any situation and circumstance, but we are uh, at least trying to be aware of that, uh, sensitive to that, and pay attention to that. So, just wanted to, to give you that quick word uh, uh, of uh, information before uh, we dive in. I want to dive in this morning uh, to our teaching uh, with, with a question just uh, for reflection. Uh, the question is very simple How do you deal with your guilt? How do you deal with your guilt? the reality is all of us uh, deal with guilt. And we can deal with it in a wide variety of ways. Rationalization, repression, uh, uh, beating ourselves up, whatever it may be. There's been some creative ways uh, along the, the way. Just a few years ago, United Press International did a story on a Brooklyn man who called himself Mr. Apology. He was encouraging New Yorkers to call his hotline. And just apologize for any wrongdoings. They could apologize uh, anonymously. The 37-year-old organizer said, I think forgiveness is a very powerful thing, and not everyone has an outlet for that. Some people can't talk to family, don't have a religion, or maybe they don't even know how to forgive themselves. And so he had these things uh, posted and signs and other venues about uh, you could call and had this number to call. Now, the callers were asked not to identify themselves as the anonymous organizer is planning on playing the apologies to the public, which kind of seemed a little odd to me, uh, but you might want to check out uh, the apology hotline. He, Mr. Apology, as he calls himself, is actually building on the, the work of Alan Bridges, who uh, tried to set up a confessional hotline in the 1980s. Just a few years ago in the New York Times, columnist David Brooks uh, was writing, religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. And he goes on to to talk about uh, all the things that sometimes we can feel guilty with. And he said, you know, we're still shaped by religious categories and the need to feel morally justified And yet, and here's the problem as Brooks identifies it, and yet we have no clear framework or set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin But no formula for redemption. I beg to disagree. I beg to disagree with David Brooks. There is a formula for our redemption, there is a provision for our guilt. And it is found in the work of Jesus Christ, the cross that we are focusing on. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 5. Let's look together, the first two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's skip down to verse 6. We're going to come back and hit verses 3 to 5 next week. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ. The gospel suggests that there is another way to deal with our guilt. And I want us to look at that this morning. I want us to talk about the feelings of guilt. I want us to talk about the way that God deals with our guilt and then talk about how we can personally experience the healing of our guilt. Let's start by talking about the feelings of guilt, the feelings that we all uh, wrestle with along the way. When we use the word guilt, uh, particularly in our culture, it tends to have one of two common meetings. The first is the state of having done a wrong. This is kind of the, the state. This is, I am wrong. I am living in this. I am standing in this state. I have done something wrong. I have guilt. I am guilty because of what I have done. So there is this kind of objective fact, if you will, that I am guilty, the state of having done something wrong. But we also talk about guilt as a feeling. It's a painful feeling of self-reproach resulting from the belief that we have done something wrong. So sometimes when we talk about guilt, we're talking about uh, our state of being, that we have actually done something wrong. We are guilty. But sometimes we use the word guilt primarily to reference feelings, our feelings of self-reproach, or sometimes we'll connect shame with it or whatever else along the way. It results from a belief that we have done something wrong. Now, here's the challenge. The challenge is you can feel guilty without actually being guilty, You can feel guilty, have these feelings of self-reproach without actually having done something wrong. And maybe you know people in your life that they specialize in making you feel guilty, right? Uh, Not because you've actually done something wrong, but maybe because you haven't lived up to their expectations or, or whatever else it might be. And so we can feel guilty without actually being guilty. But there's also the flip challenge. And that is that we can actually be guilty. We can be in a state of guilt without feeling guilty. And we, we can see that in a, perhaps in our own lives. We can certainly see that in our culture. That, uh, that maybe we are guilty. We have done something wrong. But we don't have these feelings of self-reproach. We don't have feelings of guilt associated with Our guilt. And in order to understand that, it may help to to think about the ways that the Bible talks about our our conscience and three types of conscience for the sake of kind of simplicity of getting our handle on this. The first type is a weak or an immature conscience. A weak or an immature conscience. And an example of that is in 1 Corinthians eight where Paul is writing to some folks that uh, they, they, were, they were very sensitive. They felt very, very guilty because of their background if they ate any meat that had been offered to an idol. Now Paul said that there's nothing actually wrong with that because there, I mean the idol's not real But he said, for those of you who know that, be sensitive to those others. And look how he describes their conscience. However, not all possess this knowledge that this is not a real idol, it's not a real issue. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. That they were feeling guilty About something, their conscience was making them feel guilty. Although Paul said, technically, they really weren't in a state of guilt. And so sometimes we operate with a weak or an immature conscience and and our upbringing and a whole lot of other things can factor into that along the way on perhaps the other end of the spectrum is what we might call a seared conscience a seared conscience in first timothy paul is writing to timothy about how to do life particularly in the context of the body of christ and he talks about particularly those who have departed from the faith and a part of what he describes them is, is what they do because of their conscience. He says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, kind of that picture of this, you know, burnt, hardened, seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth what's characteristic of a seared conscience a seared conf- conscience sometimes will call good things bad and will call bad things good, right? Things that that should create guilt, they say no guilt. Their conscience is seared toward that. Uh, On the other hand, there are things that they say you should feel guilt over this even though there is nothing absolutely wrong with it. It is a seared conscience. It is not in tune with, it is not attuned to God. They do not traffic in The truth, to know and believe the truth, and so they operate out of a seared conscience. We we live in a culture that I think you could argue there's a lot of seared consciousness. We celebrate things that we ought to turn from, and we keep sometimes guilt upon things that are actually truth, a seared conscience. What we, we need God's grace to help us to move toward is beyond a weak or an immature conscience and certainly away from a seared one to what we might call a mature conscience. A mature conscience. This is what Paul was, was praying toward when he, he wrote to the Philippians about how he prayed for them. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. What a great description of a mature conscience that your love may abound, but it may abound with knowledge and discernment. You may approve that which is excellent, very different from a seared conscience. You may be pure and blameless filled with the fruit of righteousness. And we have this, this conscience that is, is growing and maturing and abounding in love and knowledge and discernment. The author of Hebrews uh, writes as he's kind of ending the letter and has this list of admonitions and requests, and he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience <clears throat> desiring to act honorably, in all things, and there's this. He said, "Pray for us. We we want our conscience to be clear. We want it to be clear. We don't we, we don't want to be immature. We don't want to be seared. We want to act honorably in all things. Now, this is an expression that sometimes we banter about in our culture, right? Uh, maybe we'll say something, and oftentimes we'll even we'll even kind of have a hand expression with it. Hey, listen, my conscience is clear, right?" Uh, My conscience is clean on this. Basically, I'm kind of declaring my innocence, right? My conscience is clear. But there's a very important reminder that Paul gives us uh, that even though we might declare our conscience to be clear, doesn't make it so. To the Corinthians, he said, "'For I am not aware of anything against myself, "'but I am not thereby acquitted.'" (laughs) Me declaring my conscience clean doesn't necessarily mean it is, right? It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord. In the end, the opinion that counts the most is not even mine and is not everybody else's. But it is the Lord's. And so part of the prayer of Paul, part of the request of the author of Hebrews is train my conscience so that more and more it may mature and it may be aligned with the knowledge and the truth and the life and the love of Jesus Christ. We all deal with feelings of guilt. The challenge is the feelings of guilt are quite unreliable. They are not always an accurate barometer of the reality of our guilt. But God intervenes. God intervenes in our state of guilt and also the feelings of guilt with his solution. Let's look at the way that God deals with our guilt. And we may just kind of summarize this With one phrase, God deals with our guilt through the principle of voluntary self substitution. I know that's a mouthful. He deals with our guilt through the principle of voluntary self substitution. So go back to Romans 5. While we were still weak, verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, voluntary. Self-substitution. But God shows his love in verse 8 for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did so. We'll be justified by his blood. We'll be saved by him from the wrath of God. He intervened this voluntary self-substitution. Now here's here's an important distinction I, I want you to understand. Jesus is the only person who ever chose the fact of death. Jesus is the only person who ever chose the fact of death. Well, what in the world does that mean? because you may be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I, I know of people, I've read stories, maybe you even know somebody personally. Uh, they they engaged in a very heroic act. They, they uh, in it, 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 a military setting, the person that threw their body on the grenade to, to, to save the lives of others, or someone who entered into a dangerous situation, perhaps shoved somebody out of the way of a moving vehicle, but it cost them their own life. And, and it Paul even kind of makes reference to that. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Uh, and now please hear me on this, and I'm not in any, any don't, don't write me a letter, don't send me an email. I am not in any way trying to diminish any of those heroic acts. I mean, let us celebrate them for what they are. But I do want to make sure we understand a distinction. If you and I, over the next seven days, had something happening in a split second and we had to make a decision and we shoved somebody out of the way and their life was spared, but I you or I got crushed by the moving vehicle. We did not choose the fact of death. We chose the timing of death but not the fact you see we were going to die whether we got hit by that vehicle this week or not right the fact is we were going to die our action may have impacted the timing of it and that action did not prevent them from eventually dying it may have prolonged their life but it did not change the fact of death i said jeff why are you telling me this because jesus we need to understand what jesus did he not only chose the moment of death according to the predetermined plan of god but he was the only one who chose the fact of death he did not have to die ever. He did not have to experience it at all. But through voluntary self-substitution, he chose not only the timing of that death, the moment of that death, but the very fact of death. That's why Paul would, would Right in Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, the one who did not have to ever die, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God that he voluntarily self-substituted. It it wasn't forced upon him. He chose, even before the foundation of the world, to step in not only to that moment, but to the very fact of death. He chose to step in as our substitute so they could offer to us what only he could provide, forgiveness, uh, cleansing from our guilt, reconciliation with God. I so appreciate the words of John. John Stott on this. John Stott writes, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. I want to run my universe. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for God for man man asserts himself against god and puts himself where only god deserves to be god sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be that's the gospel that's the gospel how did god provide for our guilt By voluntary self-substitution. You see, genuine guilt, I'm not talking about just the feelings. Genuine guilt, this state of guilt, genuine guilt is an objective fact. It is an objective fact that had to be dealt with through an objective act. Act. It was, it was a fact that would just could not be ignored, that could not be just brushed aside and say it's no big deal, it doesn't matter. It was an objective act before a holy righteous God and it had to be dealt with through an objective act. And that objective act was the voluntary self-substitution of Jesus Christ on our behalf. While we were yet sinners... Rebelled against him, rejecting his love, rebelling against His holiness, while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That's God's way of dealing with the objective fact of our guilt. So how does that become operative in my life? How do I experience the healing of my guilt? The only way to deal with it now and for all eternity is through the provision of Jesus Christ. It begins with a recognition to realize that you and I are a sinner. To realize that I am a sinner, that I have personally, uh, I I, I inherited this nature, but personally I have chosen uh, to rebel against God's love and God's holiness. Paul sums it up succinctly in Romans 3.23. For all, religious, irreligious, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every nationality, all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. That's my story, that's your story, that's the story of the best person you know and the worst person that you know. We have all rebelled, we have all sinned, we have all substituted ourselves for God somewhere along the way. We have fallen short of God's design, God's love, God's holiness, and because of that, I stand guilty. I stand guilty before a holy God and the just sentence is, a, is the, for the wrath of God to be poured out upon me, for me to be separated uh, from the forgiveness and the relationship and the healing that only God can bring now and for all eternity. I realize that I am a sinner and then out of that I repent. I repent. I I, I begin to see this sin as ugly and as repulsive as God does. The New Testament church began to proclaim the gospel in Acts 3, and right off the bat there were the words, repent, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. There has to come a recognition that I'm walking in the wrong way, that I have substituted myself for God, and, and I have to begin to see. That is repulsive, and, and God creates that desire in me to turn from my sin and turn back toward Him that my sins may be blotted out. And as the other side of that coin, there is repentance, but there's also a receiving a receiving of Christ as Lord and Savior. Receiving of Christ as Lord and Savior. Romans is filled with such incredible encouragement and promises. Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you begin to see this the way that he sees it, confess to speak about it the same way that Jesus is who he said he is. He did what he said he would do. He is the one who came and lived the life I should have lived, chose the fact of death to die the death I deserve to die, to take upon himself the righteous wrath of a holy God, to do all of that, and then he was raised from the dead when I entrust my past and present and future to him I will be saved John says but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God (laughs) what was I before I was an enemy I was ungodly I was one for whom the wrath of God would be right and justly poured out but when I receive him when I receive him not only as the forgiver of my sin but the rightful leader of my life when I allow God to begin to be God again in my life he gives me the right the privilege to become a child of God and and here's the encouragement everyone everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But but, but I have all of this guilt. But God has dealt with it. He has provided for you and I cleansing, forgiveness, restoration. And in this objective fact of my guilt and the feelings that are so unreliable but accompany it, have been dealt with to the objective act of Jesus Christ. Now, before I fill in one more blank, let me just pause here for a moment and just ask. Ask that you would just be open to the promptings of God's Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you today, not about a past memory, not not about a religious experience, but about the present posture of your life. Can you say, authentically, that your present posture, the thing that you are resting in and trusting in now, is not your goodness? It's not that you have more good deeds than bad, but that you're trusting fully and completely in the voluntary self-substitution of Jesus Christ. That today, imperfectly for sure, your life is marked with a resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, a resting and a relying upon His authority in your life. Now I ask it that way because as we've taught through the years, your present posture is more important than your past memory. And there are some folks that carry around guilt because uh, they, they don't have a past memory of one specific moment and they heard some preacher or somebody tell them along the way, unless you know the exact moment you came to Christ, you aren't really there. What's your present posture? There are other people that don't feel a guilt because they say, oh, yes, 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 years ago. (laughs) Years ago, I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I was baptized or I was confirmed. And that may be a precious memory. And it may very well be the start of a journey in your life. But the fruit of that journey it's not your past memory, it's your present posture. Are you right now relying on and resting in the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ? Are you looking to him as not only the forgiver of your sin, but the rightful leader and Lord of your life? Hear my heart on this. I... I, I This isn't about trying to heap unnecessary guilt on anybody. This is about setting you free. We don't want any person to walk out of this room without knowing that they know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, to have experienced God's way of dealing with our guilt, the forgiveness that only he can bring. And you can even right here, right where you are right now, you can just cry out to him, acknowledging your sin, expressing to him that desire to turn from that and turn back to him. Ask him to be the forgiver of your sin and the leader of your life. And we would love to come alongside and help you begin to grow as a follower of Christ, maybe answer some questions you have. That's why we have that next step area in the back corner over there. And one of the opportunities that you have at the end of our service is make your way back there. And there's gonna be some folks and it would be the highest privilege that they would have today to be able to spend a few moments talking with you about how that can be real in your life. I, I urge you, I beg you. If I could force you, I'd force you, but I can't. Turn to him. Turn to God's perfect provision for your sin in Jesus Christ. And if that is your present posture, if that is where you are at today, then there's one other thing that we must continually do in order to not only be free from the state of our guilt, but from the feelings of our guilt, and that is to rejoice to rejoice continually by looking to what Jesus has done for you and I on the cross. uh, By continually looking at the cross so that when we come uh, to uh, verse 2 we had read, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 11, more than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen, I really life is challenging and it can be hard and there is real suffering and we're going to talk about that next week when we talk about the endurance of the cross but please hear me I think followers of Jesus Christ who are resting in Jesus Christ should be the most joyful people on the planet not because our life is easier in fact is following Christ may complicate it right but because of who we are and what Christ has done for us and how he has set us free and we can rejoice in that. But it it will only happen as you look continually to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you continually look to your feelings, if you continually look to your performance on any given day, you're gonna ride a roller coaster. Rejoice by looking continually to what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. That's why we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day. John Bunyan wrote a a classic Christian work. It's been impacting lives for how many years? The Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you maybe read that somewhere along the way or maybe you started it and never finished it along the way. I don't know. The, the central character is a guy by the name of Christian and he takes this long journey and meets interesting characters and ends up in all sorts of situations uh, along the way. At, at one point toward kind of the, the, the middle uh, beginning of this, this classic tale, Christian is journeying and he has this incredible burden on his back. He's carrying this, uh, this burden of, of guilt And he's trying to get rid of it. And he comes across a character by the name of Mr. Legality. And Mr. Legality points him to the the, the hill or the mountain of morality and says, If you just work, if you just go up that mountain of morality, eventually you'll be set free from your guilt. The only problem is, as Christian began to try to uh, mount the hill of morality, the further up the hill he went, the more burden got heavier and heavier and heavier because he began to realize more and more and more what he wasn't living up to. And that burden just got heavier and heavier and heavier, and he couldn't carry it. And then he came to another hill. And on the top of that hill was a cross. A cross. And as he started to make his way up that hill toward the cross, there was a grave at the the bottom of the hill. And as he was making his way up that hill, he looked up to the cross. And at one moment when he saw the cross, the the burden of his guilt fell off his back and it rolled down the hill and into the grave. And Christian began to continue to move up that hill and he kept looking at the cross and the, the more that he looked at the cross, the more that he understood and, and not only had this guilt rolled off his back and into the grave, but as he continued to look at the cross, feelings began to overwhelm him and his his head, in the words of Bunyan, it says the springs in his head were loosed and water begins to come down his face and he gave three jumps of Joy and he sang, Blessed cross, blessed sepulchre, blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me. How do you rejoice (laughs) by looking at the cross? Oh, brothers and sisters, till you're leaping for joy. (laughs) Until it, it touches not only the intellect of your mind, but the emotions of your heart. Look to the cross. Because in the cross, you find healing. Not just for the state of your guilt, but also for the feelings of your guilt. And as you keep looking like Christian did, there may come that day when, my goodness, even a Baptist <laughs> will shout and, and tears and joy. And they might even jump three times and dance about. Bless cross, bless sepulchre, blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me. That's the power of the cross. Never, never stop looking to the cross. Let's pray to him together. Oh, Father, how we marvel at what you have done for us while we were yet enemies, while we walked in ignorance of you, in opposition to you, while we w- walked with disregard for you, Jesus Christ voluntarily self-substituted for us. And so, Father, today I pray, I pray, Lord, for those that in this room, that this is the moment. This is the moment when a new life begins a moment when they move from trusting in self to trusting in you, a moment when you create in them a new heart, a new life, as they turn from sin and turn towards you. Lord, let today be the day that the cross becomes more than just a religious symbol, more than just a piece of jewelry, more than a logo on a shirt, but it becomes core of their being, their hope, their happiness, their joy. And Father, I pray for those in this room right now that name the name of Jesus Christ. Father, would you teach us to walk in joy? Not an artificial joy that we pump up, but a joy that flows from fixing our eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, let more and more and more your works so permeate our lives that we're set free. We're set free from the guilt of sin. We're set free from the power of sin. Yes, we're even set free from a conscience that can be weak, can be seared, so that more and more it comes into alignment with you And we're set free even from a debilitating feelings of guilt along the way. And I'm just going to invite you to be still for these last few moments.